So our subject this afternoon is Swamiji's legacy, which is a daunting subject in any length of time. But uh, I think if anyone can do it justice today, our panel of speakers can. There will be six speakers on our panel, and I'd like to introduce them to you, for those of you who may not know them. Uh, Naya Swami Jaya, one of the founding members of Ananda, and one of the leaders of Ananda India. And then Naya Swami Kirtani and Anand. are the leaders of Ananda Center in Assisi, Italy, and Europe generally. And then Shurjo and Narayani. They served together at Ananda Center in Delhi, India. Shurjo was one of the original members of Ananda's community in Pune. They recently moved to Delhi and Narayana, as many of you know, was Swamiji's personal assistant for the last few years of his life. And finally, Naya Swami Asha. Also one of the earliest members of Ananda, and along with her husband, Naya Swami David, she leads Ananda Center in Palo Alto, California. So I turn it over to you, Jaya. Thank you, Gyandev, and thank all of you. It's such an honor for myself and on behalf of the other speakers to be able to speak about Swami on this very auspicious day. It's only been two years since Swamiji has passed, but in some ways for me personally, it seems like a lot longer And perhaps that's because in the two years since Swamiji's passing, so much has happened with me. Not so much outwardly, but inwardly. I feel that the lessons, the spiritual lessons that have come to me within the last couple of years have been profound. And honestly, I think I can say something is probably shared by many of you as well, that I feel Swamiji much more strongly now than I did before. And perhaps that's because he was always with us. I've been 45 years or so with Swamiji, and he was always there. He was always there for us. And so because of that, perhaps I took him for granted in that way. But now that he's been gone, I felt his presence very strongly within me. And I also suspect this is the case with you. And many of you have said the same thing. How does one do justice to speaking about the legacy of such a one as Swamiji? I remember Swamiji saying many times, and you've heard him say this also before, that the life of Paramahansa Yogananda, as great as it was and as recognized as a great saint as he was, during his time on earth in the first half of the 20th century, is looked at very differently than it will probably be looked upon two, three, four centuries in the future when people look back. People will see him in a very different way. And I think the same thing will be with Swamiji. Yes, he was a great saint, or our master was a great saint, recognized as such. But Swamiji said in the future, people will look back upon him as the guru of this age, 
that we have entered into. And when people look back on that, if this proves to be true, and I do believe it will be true, when they look back upon that, they'll also see Swami there by his side. He served 65 years, his entire adult life, with one mission, to make his guru's name better known, his teachings widespread, and to serve as a true disciple. He was a good disciple. You know that phrase that was very dear to Swami, to be remembered that way, and certainly that is the case. And so we come here today together to speak about his legacy. But his legacy is many things. We know of his books and we know of his music. I think those stand on their own. They stand on, they will be remembered by their merits, surely. And of course, there's the legacy of his creative works through communities. All of you, many of you living in those communities. And we know what Master said about communities. One day they will spread like wildfire. So those too will stand. All of those creative works on their own merits, they speak for themselves. But who speaks for the inner person? That person that was so dear to all of us, that, that person that we knew personally in our lives who interceded on our behalf in so many different ways. Swami was such a unique man. And I think it was that uniqueness that attracted me to him. I was drawn to him because he was not like anybody else I had ever met. And I think the reason was because he spoke, he acted, he was from the center out. He didn't wear the clothing of anything around him, the, the attitudes, the fads, the things that were popular. He didn't wear those. He always acted from inside of himself. He was a great man, we know that. And he affected and touched every one of our lives. He was wise, surely. He was knowledgeable as well. He was a kind man. He was compassionate. He was helpful. He was generous. He was thoughtful. On and on I could go. He was also challenging. And he challenged us, too. Each one of us were challenged a little bit by him in a good way. And sometimes... We stumbled, and when we did, he supported us. You know, he would never allow us to say we ever failed. He said we had not yet succeeded yet. But when those times came, he was there to support us. I'd like to share one story. Many years ago, this was in the earlier days of Ananda, in the first five years or so, there was a fellow who did stumble. He made many mistakes. He made in his behavior, his life. And uh, he, unfortunately, because his mistakes were such and very public, they were criticized quite heavily by people in the community. And the man ultimately left. And it was perhaps because of that criticism as well. And at that time, I had to meet with Swamiji for another it was some other affair that was going on, and I had to meet with them and discuss. And as we began to begin our meeting, Swamiji looked at me. The first thing he said, he says, tell me, 
what do you think about this situation with so-and-so? And I didn't know, I hesitated, because I didn't know quite how to answer. I wanted to please Swamiji, you see, and I wanted to say the right thing. And, but yet I thought, what is the right thing? And so I said, well, I'll just say what I feel. And I feel, and I says, well, Swamiji, this so-and-so, obviously he made some bad mistakes. But what troubles me is not so much that, but the fact that he's been so heavily criticized by our, by our members. And Swamiji paused, and I could see he liked that response. And he said, if your friends, you cannot rely upon them in the times of your troubles, when can you count upon them? And I've always remembered that. He was a true and loyal friend. They're always to support us, to support one another, to be able to see us through our hardships and through our trials. And when he himself had difficulties, he turned to Master and Master. He felt that support from Master. But there was a time he didn't feel that support. As you know, in his early life, he was turned out of SRF, and it was a very dark period in his life. He felt that Master had abandoned him, had abandoned, withdrawn that support. And of course it wasn't true, but Swami knew intellectually it wasn't true, but yet his heart was, his heart was grieving. And he prayed to Master, and he said, Master, you may reject me, but I will never, ever abandon you. And that was Swami's life. He never abandoned his mission that was given to him by his guru. Now, I said his outer works, they'll be remembered, they're his legacy, and they don't need to speak for themselves. I mean, they do speak for themselves, but who will speak for that inner Swami, that person that we all came to love? And I think you know the answer. All of us here are his living legacy. He's touched all of us in some way, or you would not be here. In some way, all of us have been changed in some little bit. And we don't know how much that is, some little and some great. But we are his living legacy. And through us, Swami's life continues and passes on. The ideals that he shared, what he stood for in his life, the values that he espoused, the teachings that were brought to life, not through the written word, but the teachings that were brought to life through his daily life have been transmitted on to all of us. Each one of us has to take that as our responsibility. And from generation to generation, this is his living legacy that must be passed on. He once told us, he said, remember, giving students who come, those who come here, the teachings is not enough. You must give them bliss. You must give them God. You must give them that touch of bliss. And how do we do that? That's our responsibility. If we're, if we're going to give that to somebody, isn't it true that we must possess it first ourselves?
And so this is our challenge. It's our opportunity. It's our blessing to be able to serve in this work in this way, to be able to be given the opportunity to try, to be able to embrace this mission, to be able to embrace this challenge, to reach out and be instruments for Master's blessings, for Swami's blessings, and for his presence. And this has been the lesson in these last two years that I have been meditating upon, and I suspect you too have been meditating upon this very same lesson. I'm going to just speak very shortly and conclude with these words. Swami often would speak to us, and you've heard him say this many times. He said that the great ones came. Master, Jesus Christ, all of the great saints, they came into this world not to show us how great they were, but to show us how great we ourselves potentially can be. And I think this is also the message of Swami as well. He came to show us that what we could be. He demonstrated it through his life, through his unique contribution, through all of the creative efforts that he's given to all of us. And we need to carry that legacy forth and share it through our lives and bless everybody who comes into association with us as representatives of that vibration and that blessing that was Swamiji. Many blessings to all of you. When we speak about Swamiji, there are certain phrases that can tend to repeat themselves. And one it comes from Master, and it's one that Swamiji shared with us many times and that Jaya just mentioned, that these world brotherhood colonies would spread like wildfire. Now, when I first heard this, I didn't know Ananda really deeply or well, but there was a question in the back of my mind, how is this going to happen? And a part of me thinks that Swamiji also must have asked himself many times, how, how is this going to happen? But he didn't just ask the question, he stayed open and totally receptive in his heart, in his consciousness, to the answer to that question. And he became um, a deep channel for the answers to that question. When I first came to Ananda, it was the only Ananda community. And while I was living here, the first 10 years of my life with Ananda there were several ways in which Swamiji um, opened to other communities happening. Um, some of you will remember, I don't think we have either of them 
with us. I haven't seen either of them. When Swamiji first began to consider that he would send someone else out to Sacramento to be a focal point for teaching and expanding the work there. And I'm told that he perhaps brought this up in the beginning with the monks and nuns at the time, and there was quite a number of them. There were uh, maybe 20-some monks and 15 or more nuns. And so it was quite a large group to find from the people who would be willing to go to Sacramento to begin to do a small uh, outreach effort in an area that Swamiji had already been and found a response. And I heard that when he brought this up, there was silence in the room. (laughs) No one wanted to go out. Why would anyone want to leave this beautiful place to go into a city and be more on their own? Of course, Swamiji was looking far into the future. And he realized that if everyone stayed here, many, many people who are looking for these teachings would not hear about them. And so he plucked Haridas and Vijay from the monastery, and he sent them to Sacramento. In in other instances, in other moments, Swamiji was looking for how to start this wildfire. You know, you could hardly say that a Sacramento Center is a wildfire. It's more so now. Look what it has, has grown into. But he also was looking to train those who in the future would be leading the movement that would be moving more like a wildfire and would need those who were trained to lead them, to lead the people who would come. So one of the, one of the next uh, moves that happened was the San Francisco House, which was another huge step for those of us who were basically living here at Ananda. Swamiji picked up Jyotish and Devi out of an important role in the community here, and he put them in this big mansion on which hill was it in San Francisco? Broadway. Broadway. Broad, on Broadway in San Francisco, a house that was big enough to house 20 to 30 people. I'm not sure what the, the uh, largest number of people was that was there. And In that moment, it probably wasn't easy for Ananda here to do without Jyotish and Devi. But in Swami's vision and openness to how is it ever going to become a wildfire, he realized that more and more people needed to be trained to begin other communities. They would need to be be able to handle all of the situations that happened here at Ananda Village, that Swami tended to be the last authority that people would go to in order to have the answers of how to, how to manage things. 
And for Jyotish and Devi, this moving to San Francisco was an incredible opportunity for them to deal with all of the issues that come up between people who are living together, um, with people who are coming from outside, because there was all of San Francisco and all of the Bay Area as um, a fount of people who would be coming to hear the teachings in that center in San Francisco. And Swamiji, I'm sure, knew even at that time that he was training the people who would need to take over when he was no longer in the body. There were other communities, other centers, where Swamiji put people that he saw as uh, possible future leaders. And I will talk about the one that I have the most experience with because uh, not in, in much the same period of time that Jyotish and Devi went to San Francisco, Swamiji was getting many requests from people in Europe. Please, Swamiji, can't you send people here? Can't you start Ananda? Can't we have Ananda in Europe? Because it's very difficult for us to come to America. The exchange rate at that time was very much against the lira, and people couldn't afford to come. And so Swamiji went with a few of us on tour in Europe. And on that tour, he was obviously looking for where a possible community could be in Europe. And we went through England and Holland and Germany, Austria, and finally landed in Italy. And during all of that time, Swamiji would really connect with the people and those of us who were with him connected with the people. And as we were ready to leave, to go back, to come back to the village, he spoke with Puru and I who were there at the time together and he, he brought up the subject. He said, well, it seems like Europe is really ready for a community, an Ananda community. It seems that uh, Italy is really the place where there is the most heart for these teachings, the most openness for uh, living in a, in a different way. I wonder who we could send. <laughs> and again, there was a great silence. <laughs> mm. <laughs> And it's, uh, I don't remember, but it's likely we brought up a few names. <laughs> and, and he said, how about you guys? I think it would be, I think you would be very good here. So, in fact, uh, within the year, we were planted in Rome in an apartment given generously by uh, Italian friends. And we began to share the teachings. But much more than that, we began to be open in our consciousness to a community, a possibility of a community in a very different situation than the communities in, in America. The consciousness was different. The heart was different. Um, 
the the politics were different. The bureaucracy was different. Everything was different about having to begin an Ananda community in Europe except the real basics, which are the teachings that we have to offer and the love of Master and Swamiji that we had to share. We were only there a year and came back here. And then several years later, there was another movement in which Jyotish and Devi ended up going to uh, Como. Our very dear friend Alessandra uh, Rombolotti had a villa near Lake Como, and she offered this as um, a place where we could begin to create the magnetism for a retreat and community in Europe. And um, others were, were there at the time. And I arrived sometime later, Shivani and Arjuna, a little bit after that. And I can remember Swamiji again was training all of us for being able to carry on the work when he was gone. Because, in fact, he was going to be leaving soon to come back to America. And two things I can remember from his advice to us. One is that we were, I think we were talking about how difficult it was to cook for Italians, Germans, very different diet, um, Americans. Um, and we asked, what, what can we do? How can we, uh, how can we really share, give to, serve people uh, through our cooking and in other ways? And one of the things that Swamiji said was, if you are feeding the souls of the people who come to you, everything else will follow. If their souls are nourished, they're not going to worry about whether they're getting pasta every day. They're not going to worry about whether they're getting a healthy diet as, as they would prefer. They will be so fulfilled through their soul nourishment that everything else will flow. And so that was the one of the first things that Swamiji shared with us that we realized later was a part of serving all, all of Europe wherever we ended up going, which were, was in many countries. The other thing he said as he was leaving was there are three very important things for you to do together as a family, as a, a family community. In, in Italy, the word uh, comunità actually is much more like a, a family. And so he, and he said you should um, meditate together, it's obvious for a community of Ananda, serve together again, it's part of the two-pronged work that we do, meditating and service. And the third thing he said was a very interesting one, and one that we didn't always remember because the, we get very busy with our work. He said, have fun together. And all three of these things have been um, a key for 
opening ourselves to how we can be channels for this work of community that is supposed to be spreading like wildfire. So I want to get to the point that to me um, is a part of Swamiji's greatness. Because he's so open, he was so heart open, he was so consciousness open, that when, when he was in India and he was asked to do television program, you know, I don't know that that was his first thought about how he should talk with people, reach people, but he saw the point. You know, so many more people would be reached if he did these television programs, and he did them. And f- we know that it was of great sacrifice at times for him to do this. His his body was not healthy always, but he, that was always the first. Um, point for him was how can we reach the people? In that case, it was in India. Uh, he did the questions and answers with Nirmal and Dharmadas, who, uh, and, and so he began to be filmed. He was being filmed, and some of this was beginning to be shared on internet. And this was the point that, that made me really realize how all of this could possibly spread like wildfire because we all know what, how many people the internet today reaches. I think I heard when Swamiji first was asked, can we do a, a, a page on the internet for you? Can we put you on Facebook? Can we do? He was not eager because he may have thought of it as, as, he himself did not want to become known. But in the same way that I responded when asked about doing Facebook and I had no desire to do such a thing, uh, I was told, but this is how people will come to know Ananda Sisi. And I said, oh, well, yes. And that's what Swami did. He said, yes, this this is the way that this work, that this these colonies, these communities can really spread like wildfire is by becoming known through this immediate communications effort of the Internet. And so each one of us is a part of making the wildfire, creating the wildfire. We know what a wildfire is. It just comes through and it, it, it hits everything, you know. And the wildfire of World Brotherhood colonies is what comes through each one of us. As Jaya has said, as it was said this morning, each one of us being a channel for community, for Uh, whether it's the community of one of us individually as the, the channel for this work, whether it's the community of our family, our, our individual family, our nuclear family, our family of Ananda that we're sharing, whether it's our meditation group or our colony, or whether it's the world brotherhood colony that is every single individual 
who is Master's disciple, who is a Kriyaban, all of you here are a part of the wildfire that will spread through each one of us, individually serving through our internet serving or through our one-to-one service that we can give. I think what the message of of who Swami is that I'm trying to make with this is that he would never say no. That if there was any opportunity with which he could reach people, with which he could share Master's teaching, if there was any opportunity through which he could touch the lives of one person or tens of thousands of people, he would say yes to that opportunity. And I think that is a message for each one of us. We all have opportunities that come to us to be able to serve, to be able to share, to be able to give what Swamiji has given to each one of us. And I would say, try to always say yes and let that be your opportunity for growth, for sharing, and for honoring Swamiji through saying yes. Good afternoon, everyone. As Jayaji said, um, I too feel very deeply honored to be here in front of you today, but I also feel a little bit terrified. Um, Not because I'm worried about myself, but I'm always terrified to speak about Swami. I always feel I don't know him yet, Um, and somehow I'll reduce him. But here goes. When I first came to Ananda, um, I didn't know anything about Swamiji. I, didn't, I hadn't heard his name. I hadn't read his books. I just nothing. There was no context for me. Um, but what attracted me about Ananda, what, I, what instantly got me hooked, was as Kartikeyanji was saying this morning, and uh, is a universal experience. I'm not, this is not my unique experience. Each one of you have had this was the people. Um, that sincere, innate goodness. I, I, I don't know what, I, there are no words to describe it, but just that I, sincere goodness that I felt from each individual I met at Ananda, in Pune, in Gurgaon, just hooked me in. And at first, I thought, well, this is what it must be when you get onto the spiritual path. This is what happens. This is what happens when you become a disciple of Master of Yogananda. And, but it was a little while later that I realized by meeting more people who were on the spiritual path, other spiritual paths, by meeting more disciples of Yogananda alone, by meeting more disciples of other great masters, I realized this is something particular. This is this is this flavor is special and it's not vanilla. You know, it's it's Swami Kriyananda. This is a unique 
vibration. And it's the first time I, I started thinking of Swami as just someone who's here to share Yogananda with us, with me, as someone who has something more. And from there, my understanding of Swami has evolved, has grown, has changed until finally when I had the opportunity to live with him for the last seven months of his life to spend some time with him. I would say um, by far those were the most transformative seven months of my life, the most powerful experience of my life. And I was trying to think of why it would be such a special experience because it wasn't like I was meditating more. Um, you know, I was thinking about Master as I always did. Um, I know I was in Swami's vibration, so yes, there was always that. But really, now that I think about it, the the thing that was the most uh, was different in that experience for me is because somehow I had to take care of Swami's. We had to take care of Swami's physical body. I always thought of Swami. I was always thinking about him. I was always thinking, you know, oh, is he? I hope he wakes up and he feels well today. Or, oh, I hope, you know, I wonder what he would like to eat today. Or everything was about what would he like to do today? What's what's he feeling like today? And just keeping him in my mind, that was different. I never did that before, you see. I always thought that I had to think of Master. And I did, and we all do. But this was different for me, thinking about Swami. And I think that's what changed me. Anyone who knew me before, you can ask them. Um, and, uh, and a whole image, you know, I had an image of Swami, and this image was me and Master, and Swami here to the side, essentially pointing towards Master. And me being grateful to him and smiling at him and saying, thank you. And me moving towards Master. But after this experience, after I realized what it meant to also have Swami going in my mind, I realized that Swami is really just in the middle. And he is my path to Master. And he's a unique path to Master. He's not the only. We could circumvent him if we want to. But why would we want to? He's special that way. And he's so accessible. He created, you know, it said when a soul finds freedom, they open that channel up for everyone to join in, to come into it and access the infinite. And just as Master was the doorway to the infinite for us, Swami is that doorway for all of us to Master. And for me, that's that's the legacy of his that. I want to hold on to. He is my unique path to salvation. Through him, I'm going to get there. And that's, that's how I remember. I will remember Swami Kriyananda. But that's not enough. You can't just leave Swami there. Swami's legacy was also very, very human. And the real word that describes the seven months that I spent with him was absolute fun. (laughs) It was a joy. It was always an adventure. You know, I felt like a child again. When I was younger than I am now, (laughs) 
I used to um, read this um, comics called Calvin and Hobbes. And uh, there's this game that Calvin plays called Calvin Ball, in which the rules, the only rule is you can't have the same rules that you had last time. So you have to keep changing them. And so every day with Swami was like that. You know, every day had to be different. Every day had to be new. He woke up and now I'm going to write a new lessons, online lessons. And tomorrow I'm going to write a new book. And then today we're going to go out and we're going to find that one shopkeeper who needs my energy, needs my love the most. And every day was an adventure. And so Swami really took Master's words, life is here for our entertainment and education. He never forgot the entertainment part. But he used the entertainment part for our education. And um, that's something that I've really appreciated about him. I always, not always, but I kind of thought the spiritual path needs a little grimness. But it, it just doesn't, you know, at all. It just doesn't. There is no, there is no need for that. And... Um, you know, just two little episodes that stand out in my mind of that little time with him that, you know, add to the vast legacy, the vast qualities that Swami expressed. Um, two little episodes that came to me as uh, I was thinking about this was one about just uh, how deeply he cared for our spiritual life. You see, sometimes... We meditate in the mornings, we meditate in the evenings, we energize, you know, we think of Master every now and then, and we think we're doing pretty okay. You know, great, you know, I've got my schedule, I'm serving, I'm meditating. What more do I really need? And um, once we were in, um, in Goa, you know, Swami loved to go there for a vacation, and we were in Goa, and we, were, we came up to his room to get him ready for lunch. And um, he just, he said, Shurjo, how many Kriyas do you do? I said, well, Swami, on, on an average, around 60. And Swami just said, you know, I'm so sorry that I cannot give you the example because I'm old and even my heart won't allow me to meditate as much as I'd like to. And I'm so sorry that this is the example you're having to see. And, I mean, that was him. He, he could just say, Shurjo, 60 Kriyas aren't enough. Jeez. <laughs> you know, I mean, what's up? What's up with you? But he, he wouldn't. I was his responsibility. And he, he took that responsibility seriously. And I, I appreciate that so much. And another little thing, which is how I choose to remember Swami now, always. <clears throat> it was a week before he passed, and we were having um, dinner. And uh, for those of you who've been to his Assisi house, um, you know, he's got his computer and his office right where he eats in the dining room. <clears throat> and so we were having dinner, and in his computer screen, he has this beautiful screensaver. He has two beautiful screensavers. One of all the photographs of Crystal Hermitage. All the tulips, all the beauty. I think the Binghams are very responsible for that. So thank you. 
Um, but secondly, one other one that he loved was screensaver of photographs. I think that the Hubble telescope had taken of beautiful constellations and stars and the cosmos and galaxies and whatnot. And we were eating and we were just watching that. And each galaxy had particular shapes and particular colors. And and Swami just said, I wonder what color a Tamasic galaxy would have and what color a Sattvic galaxy would have and what color a Rajasic. And so as each photo would come, he would, you know, we would guess all of us. <laughs> I think that's a Tamasic. And he would say, no, no, I think because, you know, it was just fun. We were having a little fun. But after a little while, he just said, I wish I had asked Master that. And when I looked at him, I just realized that, you know, there is no Swami Kriyananda. There is always just been Walters. And that was Swami. It was just Walter. He was just always thinking about, I wish I had asked my Guru that. I wish I had tuned more into my Guru. And I wish I can hold on to that. I wish I could just be sure, Joe, no matter how old I get. And... I wish I could always think that way that I wish I had asked Swami that. God bless you. It's always so difficult for me to speak after Shurjo's talks because... <laughs> They are so great, and thank you. You speak about Swami beautifully. For many of us who came very late on, in Swami Kriyananda's life, we didn't have that much time to learn from our own mistakes by doing things, having a mistake, and having Swamiji corrected us in one way or another Many of us had to truly feel and to watch and to observe carefully what was Swamiji trying to do, trying to accomplish, which kind of person Swamiji wanted to meet, what kind of energy Swamiji wanted to give in a unique way to each individual. And for us, for many of us, for myself personally, that was the kind of relationship, really, that I have with Swamiji. That was my way of learning from him through watching every single movement that he did. And it's very interesting because I remember at the beginning when, even before I became his personal assistant, I came to India and it was my first time in India. And that was the time I was just going to be there for, for three months period to see how India will, how I will feel there. And many of you may know my English was really bad. And by the time that I was in India, my English was even worse. So that was the period when Swami Kriyananda started to write the Bhagavad Gita. And I think he started, and one or two weeks after that, I arrived to India. 
Well, at that period, George and Davy were there. Were there? Asha was there. I think Batman, Riemann also were there, were there. All these amazing, great souls together were just there, just being part of what Swami Kriyananda was writing, the Bhagavad Gita. So I remember my first day at the ashram where I didn't know almost anyone and everyone was talking into English in English. And I, I, will, I will hear here the, the Bhagavad Gita and then I will hear oh, the Swami Kriyananda. And I remember myself thinking, what unfortunate, I mean, I feel so bad. I'm sure these great souls are talking about such a deep stuff between themselves. Even I'm sure they are even sharing something great that Swamiji has said to them. And I'm not able to understand one single word. Such a pity. And that was my first night at the ashram. Like, what I'm doing here? I mean, I'm not able to understand anything. The next day, I don't know if it was Nirmala or Dharma Das that they call me and they say, you know, you are invited to go to Swami Kriyananda and he would like for you to read some of the pages that he has written from the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> I say, okay, that will be great. I don't know even how we communicate that. So anyway, I went with my bag to Swami Kriyananda's house and I remember a few, a group of people were read, reading page by page. So Swami greeted me, hi, nice to see you. And I just sat there. I opened my bag and I bring out this little traveler dictionary, English, Spanish translation. So Swami looked at me and said, what is that? <laughs> well, Swami is just a dictionary that I think it will help me to understand what you are working on. And very seriously, he told me, oh, you won't need that. You will be able to feel it. And later on, I realized that he was not only meaning that I will be able to feel at that very moment, that specific project that he was working on. In fact, that is the only true way to understand things, people, truth, as it is, by the heart, by the feeling. And that was really what my life was about around Swamiji. I had to learn later on when I began his personal assistance, I had to learn how to feel his consciousness, his energy. I had to learn how to feel what he wanted to do every single day, what kind of community he wanted to visit, what kind of people he wanted to meet. It was a process of learning how to feel things in your heart. It wasn't about understanding things intellectually, how you can feel everything from your heart. And that process didn't end when Swamiji left his body. In fact, that process started even in a deeper way when he left his body. 
because I still need to learn ever more deeply how can I feel Swami Kriyananda in my heart, in my life. I need to attune what is trying to happen, how I can serve this work, how I can serve my Guru. It's a constant process of keep feeling in our hearts. You know, by being here, so many memories are coming into my mind. And there is one very unique that for me, Swamiji, yes, I can speak how great he was, how vast his consciousness was, what a great mission, what a great role in life he had. But more than that, what it really touched me is how much he cared for the little things, for our little needs, even the most remote needs that we could have. I remember in this very house that um, he knew that I was struggling with my English and he really wanted to help me and I did improve. Every time I did something wrong, he would correct me very openly in front of everybody. He didn't care. So I was very grateful for that. But one of the evenings, I don't know what happened. I wrote him an email. Someone wrote me. So I, I, I had to explain a little bit, you know, what it was all about. So the moment I pressed send, like two minutes after, I was in his room next to bedroom. I hear, Narayani. So I just went there and said, yes, Swamiji, could you just sit for a moment? So I sat and said, listen, you have improved so much. In your English, you are speaking much better. But your written English is so bad. You seriously need help. I say, I think it was 11.30 at night. I say, okay, Swamiji, I will be happy to learn as much as I can. And he said, you know, let's do something. Every night before you go into bed, just write me an email doesn't need to be long, two, three lines. Just tell me a story. You can even invent the story that you want. So you write me a story, send to me. I will correct it for you, and I will resend you that email so you will see what your mistakes are. That was the time where he was writing the book, autobiography. I mean, the biography of Yogananda, that was the time where he was meeting so many people. It was one of the most busiest, busiest periods of his life. And I remember I had to do that every night. So this that every night. So that process lasts for at least weeks. So every night I would write an email. Today I did this, I did that, and I had a cup of tea. Anyway, just whatever came to my mind. And I will suffer so much doing that because I will think, here Swamiji is, a disciple of a great avatar for more than 60 years, making this, creating these communities, writing these scriptures, this book, giving so many lectures. And the only thing that he's concerned is that I can improve a little bit 
my language. And that really touched my heart so deeply because I understood that for him, it wasn't a tapasia at all to do that. For him, it wasn't a waste of time. The truth is that there was no distinction in his mind what were the little things versus the big projects. Everything was the same from him. He saw God in each one of us. And in helping us, he was serving God through us. So there was no divine mission versus divine mission. <laughs> Everything was the same for him. And for me, that was the biggest greatness that I saw in him. His humanity, his way of taking care of us in such a unique way. That is his true greatness. Things that he will never share. Things, And this is just a little chapter of his life, a little thing that he did for me. But how many of thousands of those little things he did for each one of you? We could even write a book in how many small ways he really touched our hearts. And I know that many of you may feel, may think, well, I mean, you were so lucky because you were with him and you were able to spend that time. I wish I could meet Swami Kriyananda. I wish I could be with him. But I could tell you exactly what he told to me that day when I brought out my little dictionary. You don't need that. You will be able to feel him. Just try to open your heart. You don't need, you won't need Swami Kriyananda's physical form. You won't need Swami Kriyananda's, you will be able to feel him. So open your heart, be receptive, and just God will do the rest. Thank you so much. It's just such a joy to be here. And I'm just going to end. I feel also so grateful for Miriam, Lakshman, and Lila. Because even for all of us, it was a very difficult period in our lives at the very end. And many of you who know the four of us, we were very peculiar in our own things. But our love for God, our deepest love for God, all of us, Lila, Miriam, Laxman, and myself, and later on, of course, Jaydara, but at the beginning, the four of us, that was the main thing that united us. And all of us is the main thing is uniting us in his name. So I wanted to thank them to them too, to, because they embraced me after so many years serving Swamiji, you know, and they found themselves just, you know, Swami throw me in their lives. They did a fabulous job, and all of you, it's just such a joy to be here. God bless you.
it is truly an honor to be a part of this, a member and a, a part of this great family, this great spiritual family. <clears throat> Attunement was something that more than any other direct disciple of Master that I've met, Swami emphasized that to all of us. And so I wanted to tell a story that illustrates that and then to segue into another story because it's so important to our lives at Ananda and as Ananda grows and um, it's always, of course, necessary to be an organization and a structure, but um, Swami always picked up the knot by attunement and attunement to the guru. Um, I moved here to Ananda and I had a little bit more expenses than the salaries at the time could meet, so I took a job outside the community, lived on the land but worked in town. And uh, there was a certain point where I went into Earth Song and Jyotish and Devi were there and I think having lunch with Swami and um, they said, listen, um, every Wednesday when we do the community meeting here in the Dome, just before that we meet just the little group of us with people in the community. Why don't you come this next Wednesday? So I said, okay. <clears throat> Swami, so we met and Swami said, you know, maybe it's time you consider now moving on the land. I think we've, the community's grown to the point where probably we could find you a salary that would allow you to work on the land. And um, uh, he was very interested in the job that I was doing and he was interested in having it be a community business. He, and so I, I said, yes, you know, gosh, I could maybe go up and rent a little space on the, in the yellow building and, and that way I could bring, the land, the, uh, bring to the land another business for Ananda. And, uh, he let that one go by, but it, uh, um, <laughs> then again we were talking and I said, well, yeah, maybe I could even uh, grow it to the point where uh, it would uh, produce another job for somebody here at Ananda, and that pretty much broke it. And all of a sudden, a huge explosion, literally, he said, my name was Mark at the time, Mark, forget Ananda, just forget Ananda. And there was truly this pregnant pause on the part of Jyotish and Davy and the, a few of the others, and there was truly weeping and gnashing of mental teeth, and he let that pause be pregnant. It went and it went, and I shrank, and I shrank. <laughs> and then I got it, and then he reached over just so gently, and he tapped me on the knee, and he said, on the leg, and he said, do it for God. He said, I watched, doc I watched Master reprimand Dr. Lewis because Dr. Lewis was all a fuddle about something about for Master to do this thing for Master. And he said, and Master was very hard with Dr. Lewis, do it for God. Now, I had grown up in the Catholic Church, and then I joined SRF. So I was well indoctrinated into 
um, the right organization and the t- only true organization. And so Swami saw that, and he saw it as a my personal thing to grow. So he took a personal need on my part, because the next part of the story is that we ended our meeting, we went into the dome, Swami proceeded to give a very inspired lecture on how we all here at Ananda can serve God by serving Ananda. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I sat with my jaw open listening to him and realized he did it for me because he realized that was my lesson to learn. And so, just some, just, just this last week, um, we took our, we have 40 of our community members here from Italy and um, we were touring down south in the Master Shrines, and it was Hollywood Church. And, of course, we all know that Swami met Master there at Hollywood Church. And so the minister there, he's a fine fellow. I knew, I've knew i known him uh, also in the many years that he was stationed at Encinitas. And the minister was asked, well, maybe we could go look and see that room that where um, Swami first met Master. And, well, you know, we don't want the emphasis to be the wrong emphasis. This is, this is where Master talked to the public, and this is where the Master had the intuition to find the windows and build the church. And he was right, but what we all know that story in the path, in that story very specific lessons about attunement, about will you love me unconditionally? Will you be obedient? Will you give me your unconditional obedience? We also know two full minutes. I mean, I had a pregnant pause of um, reprimand from Swami, but two full minutes, Swami said, Master vibrated his finger on his chest to change, and, and Swami said, I was changed. But the most important thing is that he that through that little room we got a lesson on attunement and so and that's what swami always did was he taught how to tune in a, a very humorous level of that then is that swami and i are driving once and um as you all know he liked and often whether i liked it or not he corrected my english and uh, so we're driving along, and I said something about um, to error. And there was this, and I finished the sentence, and there was this pause. And then I realized, I just caught it. I said, oh, wait a minute. And I said, okay, Swami, to err. And he laughed and laughed, and he slapped me on the on the um, on my thigh, and he said, "Very good." He <laughs> but he liked the fact he he laughed the hardest because he because because really I think I caught his thought. Well, okay, I'm not going to correct him, but it's really to err, not to err. <laughs> he just he he really was. Um, 
helpful but delightful. And the last story I just want to, it's difficult a little bit for me to share, but because there was a time, we we saw him through many illnesses, but we, we brought him home from Lugano once and he was really decreasing. I mean, he, we really felt this was it. In fact, I overheard him in Lugano call Jyotish and Davy and say, I think this might be it. We got him home, and um, I would sleep upstairs in his living room, just put a mat down, and um, anytime I'd hear him get up, I would, I would get up to be at his bed to help him because he just he became worse and worse. And so a particular, and but some of those times, and he would get up, he would come out, if you can imagine, here's two men in their underwear, and we would sit in the living room, and we would quietly meditate together, uh, uh, or we might have a little conversation, but it can also, it was also at two or four o'clock in the morning. Then we would get back up, he would get back up, and I would help him back into bed. But as it got worse, then um, there's this one particular morning, and he, I heard him move, so I got up to help him, and he, he just couldn't walk anymore. He was so weak, his whole body was trembling. And, um, but he wanted to come out to his chair, and he says, I think, this is, I think he was taking it from a P.G. Woodhouse, but he said, this is the most horrible night of my life. And he said, I, it's like the Russian who um, uh, kills his wife and then uh, succeeds and also drowning his baby, then goes home after that hard day of work only to find that the vodka cabinet is empty. <laughs> and <laughs> here is Swami all... I mean, I've, I'm sitting there thinking that Swami is dying, and he, and Swami comes up with this, and I started to laugh. I, I said, I laughed till I had the tears coming down my face, and I said, Swami, I'm so sorry. I cannot stop laughing. I'm here. I was, the the dying man. I thought right in front of me, and I couldn't stop laughing, and I laughed so hard that he started to laugh, and then we're both laughing there, and then. Um, he, so I got him back up after that, and I put him back to bed. Um, that was about 4 o'clock. Another two hours at 6 o'clock, he asked me, or I heard him. I, I went, and we brought him out, and he sat down again. And he said, I'm back. <laughs> and l- truly, something in those two hours changed. And then he said, I'm up now, and... Uh, you go ahead and um, you know take your leave and um, Miriam and um, I think it was still Leela at the time and they'll they'll be here and um, then as I was leaving he said tell you and Kirtani come over at ten and we came over and he said again I'm back and he said I don't want you now to uh, erase any of my appointments I don't want you to uh, in any way, I'm back, and I want my appointments back, I want my life back. And something in that time changed. I saw that in Swami's life so many times where um, I just thought, 
he's, he's gone, and then you all seen it. Then he would return to America, or he would return to India. He would, and so the last, just to the, in that same way, and many of you know the story, but it also segues in that one of those times, and he was so ill when we came in in the morning, and um, I said, good morning, Swami, and he said, good morning, Anand. But when he looked up, at, he was sitting at his table, when he looked up, his whole body was trembling, and he said, would you fix me a spramuta? And I said, um, um, fresh juice. I said, certainly, Swami. And he said, and, uh, and Kirtani sat down, and Kirtani said, Swami, this is when I've become angry, and that's the, all that she got out, or maybe angry with. D- d- no, don't say it, he said. This is Divine Mother's body, and she'll do with it what she wants. And that's how he lived. He just let these things go, come and go, and I, I can't tell you how many times I thought we were going to see Swami leave, and then... Um, he would pass that. So he was, faith was his armor. And he really did live that way. He talked the talk and he lived, he, he really lived what he believed in and he believed in it. And it, it was such an inspiration to me. And so just on a very humorous note, to, to bring it up just a little bit, they're traveling and a group of them, and Kirtani's in the back seat. And they had stopped, and they had... Uh, um, Swami was very informal, man. I, be, I became a Kriyachari and an auto grill. And uh, <laughs> so <clears throat> we're, we're traveling, and, um, and they had all shared a little bit of chocolate and things, and, and Kirtani goes, was in the back seat behind Swami and said, Swami, would you like a head rub and... He said, certainly, and he, he laid the chair back a little bit, and Kirtani was back behind uh, misogyny's head, and um, she said, yeah, um, th- this is good, Swami. I was sort of wondering how, what I was going to do with the chocolate that I had on my fingers, <laughs> and, <laughs> and Swami laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. He loved, he really was a man of joy, of bliss, and that's his legacy is attunement, but it's also joy and it's also bliss. It is amazing how many stories about Swamiji relate to the challenges that his body went through. Um, And there is a a lesson there that's because so many of us are intimidated by bodily indisposition and frightened by uh, so much of what we see. And to have that lesson both of joy and of willpower and I remember Dr. Peter once was testing his heart when Swami's heart was having some wild arrhythmia. 
And uh, Peter says that most people, when they're having that, when their heart's that agitated, their minds are also agitated. But Swami would say, there, Peter, did you hear that one? <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> and I was remembering another time when I, you know, the litany is great. Maybe it was the diabetes episode. Maybe it was when he had the compression fractures in his back. Maybe it was when the blood pressure wasn't working. I don't know. It was, you know, a series of collapses. And he went to the dentist. He didn't have any cavities. <laughs> and he came home and he announced that he had no cavities. And I, just like Kirtani said, uh, thank the Lord for little favors. You know, just trying to be facetious in the moment. Absolute. All, all humor was completely gone from the room. He said, I thank God for everything. Just like that. You know, the, the constancy of his consciousness was a really a, a, a big learning on many different levels because all of us are capable of understanding how we ought to behave. And we can even work it out philosophically exactly why we should behave a certain way. And the process of the path is gradually getting a modicum of self-mastery so that we don't actually say that thing that occurs to us to say. (laughs) Or we restrain that feeling of the heart. But what I understood about Swamiji was, of course, he didn't have right attitude. He had right consciousness. And right consciousness is, of course, an entirely different reality. It's simply looking at the world and seeing God's presence everywhere. So it it was a very serious thing to thank God for little favors because that meant you weren't thanking him for the rest of it. And where something like that might just sort of slip through, who cares? There wasn't, no, no minute was unimportant to Swamiji. And Sergio was talking a little bit about why it was so interesting to be with him. Sergio and Narayani both were referencing that to a certain extent and giving certain examples. And you know they're all true. You just never knew what was going to happen. And it was always, just always a lark. When Swamiji was talking on the phone to me once about, this was like 1996, 7, 8, one of those moments where his heart was very weak. And we were talking on the phone. That was when he would still use the phone. And he was talking about, I could slip away at any moment. And I had to honestly say, Swamiji, you've already done the work of ten incarnations, and there's just no way any of us could ask you to stay a minute longer than you feel to. So, you know, I'm only one, but I speak for all of us. When God calls, don't hesitate. And then I had to say, it just won't be as much fun to be on this planet, you know? And he was so serious with me. He said, I know, I've been through it. Somi was 25 when Master died. And that's not very old. He had three and a half years. And then, not so long after, you know, his uh, harmony with his guru bhais actually disintegrated pretty fast. I've seen some correspondence from 1953, which is pretty bone-chilling, in terms of the discrepancies between his point of view and his guru bhais. And then, not long after, he was utterly separated from all his guru bhais. You know, it's very hard. Look, look around. 
at this enormous family. We have so many peers, don't we? We have so many people, and I remember sitting with Nitai, and this was already quite some time ago, and I noticed that Nitai wasn't as young as he used to be. (laughs) And he's just a a random example. (laughs) But I remember looking at Nitai and said, Nitai, look at us. We came when we were so young, and we're still here. You know, that's success. We're still here. And we've been able to do it together. And God knows we've needed each other. You know, how could we have ever made it without the mirror and that hand-holding? Because some of the past ain't pretty. Let's just put it like that. I'm always torn between exposing myself and my friends and just letting you think we were born this way. (laughs) But Swami did it alone. He didn't have one peer. He didn't have one fellow disciple. And every so often somebody would come who had some relationship to those days with Master, even the tiniest relationship. And he would cling to them sometimes just beyond all reason as far as we were concerned, unless you could stop for a minute and realize how alone he was. Three and a half years with, with Master, 25 when Master left, and he never had a peer after that, except for rare moments, and most of his peers did their best to destroy him. Talk about triumph. But he didn't do it with right attitude. He did it with right consciousness. And when you were with him, you see, he demanded that of you. He didn't demand it of you by demanding it of you. It's that you you just wanted to be where he was. I don't mean physically, you just wanted to be where he was. Because, well, it was so much fun in the most divine sense. Because, you know, what is it when you're having fun? I mean, there's other words for it. Freedom is one of it, isn't it? When we're having fun, we've forgotten all the reasons why we shouldn't be having fun. (laughs) Which is why Swami understood exactly when I said that. Because when you're in the presence of the Master, then nothing matters. And so here we are. So let's go back to ill health, because this was such an interesting story and time. There was a time when Swami was in India... I believe he was having his gallbladder removed in the process of doing those tests. They discovered he had cancer. There was, because of the 12-hour time shift from India, there was a great many of -of middle-of-the-night calls and lots of confusion, as it turned out, about did Swami want us to tell people he had cancer? Did Swami not want to tell people he had cancer? Was it? And I, I was caught because I knew he had cancer. Are we going to be praying for his gallbladder when he really has cancer? And it all sort of happened, and before seven in the morning, um, I had understood, as it turns out, it was not so clear-cut, but I had understood he wanted everyone to know he had cancer and he wanted us to pray for him. So before the rest of America woke up, I had sort of sent that announcement out. I'm a little fast sometimes. Not everything in the past is real pretty. But that happened. And then it was done. 
But what happened was everybody started praying for Swami rather rather desperately because now he didn't just have a gallbladder operation, he had cancer and we were not ready to lose him. And so there was this, I think we started a, a 24-hour prayer vigil around the world and in our temple it was full of people and they were praying for Swami. <clears throat> and many people afterwards came and told me this. The kinds of things you've heard people say, I won't repeat them all. But for the first time, what they were doing, they were uniting their consciousness with Swami's consciousness. The impetus was to pray for him. But in the effort to pray for him, they were matching their consciousness to his. And many, many people told me that was the beginning of their relationship with Swami. Isn't that fascinating? We just never know. We just never know But all we have to take care of, really all we have to take care of, and that's all Swami ever took care of, your consciousness. Your attitude will get you to your consciousness. But in the end, it's only your consciousness. And now you see that's what Swami has become. That's all he ever was. But we also had that wonderful person. And I agree with Jaya. It's been two years and it's been about a hundred years. It's a very, very, very It's the weirdest experience of time I've ever had. On one level, when you're with Swami, it's a moment in eternity and everything changes. And then you look at the calendar and you think, when is he going to come back from wherever he is? And you realize, no, he's not. So you have to go back into that consciousness. But what a legacy. You see, that's the eternal one. Everything else will last a long time. But his consciousness, especially when we unite, when we unite ours with his, that's eternity. God bless you. And with a very simple song that we would like all of you to join us. Swamiji has said, if you want to get to know me, listen to my music. And if you want to know his consciousness, sing his music. So we'll invite you to sing with us a very simple but very deep and powerful song. Give me a light to light my way. Truth is the light, so wise men say. And Don Barrow will lead it off. And then um, as I join in, feel free to join in with me on the duet. Give me a light to light my way Truth is the light so wise men say Give me a light to light my way Truth is the light so wise men say Give me a light to light my way Truth is the light so wise men say Truth is the light, so lies my way. Truth is the light, so lies my way. Truth is the light, so lies my way. Truth is the light, so wise men say.
Thank you to all of our speakers today. Beautiful. Just have a couple of short announcements. And you know, first of all, just thank you for, to everyone for working with the major logistics of a, of a weekend like this. It's, a lot of planning has gone into it, but it still needs a lot of cooperation to come off, and we appreciate that so much. So thank you. Uh, this evening is the Festival for the Joyful Arts Performance in the Community Center, which is the big building near Master's Market. The performance will begin on time uh, at 7.45, so please try to arrive at least 15 minutes early. Uh, those of you who prefer fresh air or uh, need overflow seating that can watch the performance on a big screen on the lawn uh, of Master's Market, so you might want to bring a jacket if you would like to do that. And then tomorrow morning we'll have our private screening of the movie The Answer. And please note that this screening is not open to the public. It is open to us. The carpools to the Del Oro Theater will will, uh, depart at 8 a.m. from the market and from the expanding light. Uh, Please stop at either location to offer a ride or to find a ride. Directions to the theater are in your welcome packet. Thank you all.